Hello there and welcome into this edition of The Intersection with conversation highlights from the Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. For years, Jason Romano was a producer at ESPN. Now he blends sports with the message of Christ through his work as host and producer of the Sports Spectrum podcast. Through his experiences, he has some observations about what true leadership looks like. You'll be hearing from him ahead. And former NFL player who now leads the marriage and family ministry at the Rock Church in San Diego, Darren Carrington, in a conversation aired prior to a recent virtual marriage enrichment event, highlighted some of the pressures that marriages face. Some of his comments are coming up. Also, Aubrey Shines leads Glory to Glory or G2G Ministries in the Tampa area. He has drawn a number of church leaders together to counter the messages of the culture that are rooted in identity politics and divisiveness with the truth of the scriptures. He is founder of Conservative Clergy of Color. His observations are coming up. And on this edition of The Intersection, you'll be hearing from Rob Curry. He is a college professor, but he desires for younger readers, such as elementary and middle school students, to be knowledgeable of history. He has written a book for that age group from a Christian faith perspective that details the winter in World War II in which the German army set out to intentionally starve the Dutch people. Finally, Pat Nolan of the Nolan Center for Justice Reform with the American Conservative Union Foundation joined me recently to share his story about having gone to prison from a high position in government leadership being asked to join prison fellowship by the late Chuck Colson and working in the area of prison reform. Hear a portion of that conversation coming up. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Well, I had a chance recently to talk with the host and producer of the Sports Spectrum podcast, former ESPN producer Jason Romano. In our conversation, he discussed his career transition several years ago and highlighted principles he covers in the book, The Uniform of Leadership, Lessons from True Success from My ESPN Life. Here now from that conversation is Jason Romano. Once I got to my teen years, you know, I, I really didn't have any interest in faith. I didn't have any mentors or anybody kind of guiding me or teaching me of why faith was so important and is so important in, in the lives of so many. And so I just went on this path to pursue broadcasting and sports. And that's why I ended up at ESPN, I think. Uh, certainly, I didn't even um, think that that could take place, you know, because it's such a, a prestigious place. But I ended up there and was thankful. But in 2001, something happened. And I was introduced to Jesus for the first time uh, by my brother, of all people, my brother, Chris. And now I was walking through that tension of, you know, work and faith and life. And what's it mean to be a believer working at a place like ESPN? And that was a process that took me about 10 years to really kind of understand, and I don't want to say figure out, because I think we're all in the process of trying to figure out, um, you know, our walks with the Lord, you know, and our purpose, I think. Uh, but I realized that God had placed me at ESPN for a reason, and my desire, you know, changed from just trying to please myself to pleasing God in the work that I was doing. And then somewhere around 2016, 2015, you know, I could really sense the Holy Spirit kind of nudging me to a place where maybe it was time to pivot away from ESPN. And, you know, I remember when I first brought this up to my wife, she thought I was crazy. And I told a, a select few other people, not a lot, but a few, 
And they all said, you're not crazy, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I said, well, <laughs> sometimes I think when God is speaking, that's, you know, the moments that he's really truly speaking don't make a lot of sense. And for me, I kind of went on a journey in 2016 to try and figure out, does God really want me to leave ESPN? And so through a lot of discussion, a lot of relationship building and just connecting with different people, this opportunity came to leave with Sports Spectrum. And, um, you know, I think if it were up to me, I probably would have tried to leave earlier, but I don't think that would have worked out. You know, God's timing is perfect, I believe. And, you know, the timing of when I did leave was his timing, not mine, because if it were up to me, I think I would have left a year earlier. So let's talk about that concept of of the uniform, because I, I think that's a, a powerful way. The way someone carries himself or herself can really speak powerfully to the presence of Christ within them. So uh, what's uh, share your concept of, of that whole area of the uniform. Yeah. So as we were putting the book together, we, we were thinking about telling leadership lessons and stories from my time at ESPN. But the idea for this, for the book and the title for the book really stems around the idea of how do we carry ourselves every day as people, as athletes, as leaders, and ultimately as followers of Christ. And so this idea for the uniform came aboard, you know, when we were talking about sports and sort of the metaphor of sports and all of us wearing a uniform in sports. And so the idea of an, an athlete, right, let's take a baseball player, somebody on the Red Sox. And so every jersey that, uh, or the Mets or the Yankees or whatever team you want to pick, each day we wake up as human beings we metaphorically have to decide that we're going to put on a uniform today and what uniform are we going to wear and how are we going to wear it? So in baseball, for my New York Mets, the team I root for, <laughs> their uniforms have the Mets on the front, you know, the big logo of the Mets on the front. And on the back, it has a number and then it has a name, a last name. For many of us, including myself for many years, we put that uniform on each day as we go out into the world and we wear it backwards. We wear the name on the back of the jersey on the front. And I've just found in my life, when I worry about me first, and I don't mean that in the sense of taking care of myself. I just mean when I put my ego ahead of serving others, of being a team player, it usually doesn't work out well. When you look at the sports world, when players are playing for themselves in a baseball arena or a basketball arena, or the football world, or any team sport, softball, you see that it usually doesn't work out well when they're selfish, when they're playing for themselves, and they're not a good teammate. The uniform of leadership is a model of three. I am third. God first, others second. It has to be others second, and then ourselves third. And I'm not taking ourselves out of the equation. I'm just making sure that the order is proper. Jason Romano here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to jasonromano.com. Well, next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Darren Carrington, marriage and family pastor at Rock Church in San Diego. In advance of a recent virtual marriage enrichment event, he discussed pressures that marriages are facing in light of COVID-19. Here now with some perspective is Darren Carrington. It was an instance where just like most young men, I had a dream of becoming a professional athlete and I achieved that dream in 1989 and went to the Super Bowl my first year and 
you know, things were really going great, but I had this, this need of, man, there's something missing. And I didn't know what it was. And it took me, it was about a two-year process uh, for me to kind of go, you know, full circle, if you will, bounce, you know, went to a couple other teams. And when I came to San Diego, I met um, a man uh, by the name of Gilbert, who was my teammate, who I saw something different in him. And through our relationship, I understood the reason why he had the peace that he had and the respect that he had was because of his relationship with Jesus and how he loved his wife and treated his family. And from that point, I realized, man, that's what I was missing. That's what I needed. And I came, uh, I surrendered my life to Christ in uh, 1991 and been walking with him ever since. What are some of the needs that your ministry has observed and encountered with respect to some of the pressures that marriages have been facing during this time of coronavirus? Um, well, you know, for the most part, a lot of a lot of the um, the challenges that marriages have faced, they're just being intensified now because couples are now spending not one or two hours, which they normally spend on an average day. They're spending four to six to eight hours a day. So, you know, um, communication, even though couples are together, they are not necessarily communicating more. Um, conflict is on the rise, you know, of, of being together more, um, uh, just and then having to take on other roles as far as now, you know, the kids are not going to school, so they don't have that buffer, of, you know, that space there. You know, all these things are just being intensified. And what we've seen is is that couples are just, they don't know how to deal with, you know, they don't know how to deal with conflict. You know, when they had to deal with one or two conflicts a week, that was different. But now it's 10 to 12, and they're just needing those, again, those basic tools to, to, to navigate through marriage. It's kind of like an athlete. No matter how long an athlete's been playing, they have to go to practice and they have to go to training camp right, to learn those basic things, those fundamentals that they've been doing all their life. Well, and when we think about God's plan for marriage and the view of marriage as being, well, the two becoming one, that we are really called to be a team. We need one another. We need to draw strength from one another as married couples during this time of of coronavirus and all of this um this pressure that is on the marriages, but it sounds like what you are observing is that married couples maybe are going in the the opposite direction. Instead of leaning toward one another, they are actually pulling apart from each other. So how can couples really avoid that happening, especially in the light of these trials that they're facing? Yeah. You know, um, whenever someone, uh, you know, we are, we try to be very, um, intentional about certain things and i think that's what has to happen it's it's about being intentional and it may sound silly to say that we need to start setting a time for us to get together but even though you're home together i think couples they need to start setting time aside to connect to make sure that they're remembering one another because as we just discussed is this we don't know how long this is going to be but our greatest resource right other than jesus is this, this husband or this wife that God has given us. So now let's, let's continue to navigate through life with this person that I love, who I cherish, who I, who I honor, and who I adore, right? Because a lot of times that, that connection between us two, man, that could completely change our mindset and allow us to see things completely different. Darren Carrington here on The Intersection. You can find out more about the ministry by going to SDRock. 
www.theintersectionpodcast.com. Well, next on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Aubrey Shines, pastor of Glory to Glory Ministries in Tampa and chairman and co-founder of Conservative Clergy of Color. In our recent conversation, he shared his observations regarding racial issues in America. Here now from that conversation is Aubrey Shines. Nowhere in Scripture do we see a racial divide. Again, I'm a history guy. So when I hear about this thing called racism, please, America, understand it didn't happen really until the 1600s by a French doctor who began to qualify and quantify people by their race. Now, it doesn't mean that there were not social problems in Scripture. It doesn't mean that there were not certain prejudices, but it had nothing to do with race and all. So in my scenario, as a senior pastor, I shepherd 20 plus different ethnic groups every single Sunday. So when I present arguments of this magnitude, and when our congregants see us fight black and white together in this nation to preserve this nation, it is something that when I read scripture, every one of those 66 books, There is no divisiveness in Scripture. The idea of Christ is that we are all one, and by one blood, according to St. Paul, have all races been formed, have been created. And it's the same Paul that gives this great metaphor that the body is one. We can't say, the foot can't say to the hand, I don't like the color you are, therefore I'm going to just, I don't know, annex myself from the body and start a new body. That's insanity. And until we have this honest conversation in our church pulpits, We are going to continue to contribute to this divisiveness that is ripping up this nation. And I just think, my friend, we can do a lot better than that. When we see on the media that you have people that are that are going out, they're in the streets, they're tearing down statues, they're engaging in vandalism and rhetoric that is heated and angry. What's the what's their agenda as you see it? What's the the end game and how and I know you've touched on it already, but but how can we be faithful in responding? We have to speak up. God knows that we all need to fall on our knees and just petition the heavens for courage and power that we actually say that we already have. And for God's sake, stand up and speak out against when we see monuments. And I warned this several years ago when I was doing a a media outlet piece many, many years ago. I said, listen, the moment monuments, for instance, are removed, I said, what's next? Dr. Martin Luther King, after all, he believed in traditional marriage. By the way, he was against abortion. Is, Is he next? Well, we're seeing that happen right now with not just uh, what they say, well, what about these racist uh, guys that we, they have these big monuments? I says, listen, listen, please hear me. When you remove monuments, I don't care how bad and or good those individuals are. What you're removing is our history. What you're saying is, I don't care how bad this individual may have been, what he or she may have represented, look at this monument as a testimony that we overcame it. For God's sake, leave it alone, because then What's next? A statue of Christ? Oh, by the way, they're doing those as well right now. So when we begin to obviously, intellectually, begin to have this type of conversation, 
it is going to lead us to addressing issues, but not the issues that the media and groups like Black Lives Matter are trying to force. These are Marxists. These are people that literally, and it's in their platform, by the way, they hate America. They hate traditional marriage. They hate anything that is normative. And their goal and objective with their billion-dollar funding by various European and guys like uh, groups and guys like George Soros, they are wreaking havoc on America. And if we don't stand as believers and push back on this, join hand-in-hand together on these issues, we will lose America. And my God... I'd rather fight dying to preserve it than to sit back passively docile and not engage. I just think we can do better. Aubrey Shines here on The Intersection. You can find out more about him by going to AubreyShines.com. Find out more about the organization through the website ConservativeClergyOfColor.org. Well, this is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center, the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on The Intersection podcast. Also, you can find the podcast in the Media Center. It's also available through iTunes. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, and the other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content. Again, the website address is meetinghouseonline.info, as well as the programming section at faithradio.org. Plus, conversations from the Meeting House program can also be found through the Faith Radio app and through a variety of podcast platforms, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Continuing now with this edition of the Intersection podcast, it's Rob Curry. He is a professor at Judson University in Illinois and author of the book aimed at readers in grades 4 through 8 called Hunger Winter, A World War II Story. In our conversation, he shared about the historical event on which the novel is based and his approach to the material from a Christian worldview perspective. From our conversation, this is Rob Curry now. The particular people mentioned in the story never lived other than the famous people like like Hitler. But a lot of people know about Anne Frank and Corrie ten Boom and wonderful stories. Corey was captured in February of 44, and Anne was captured in August of 44. And then after that, most people don't really know too much about what was going on with civilian life during the war. In September, the, the Germans cut off food and fuel to the Dutch people in retaliation for their resistance activities. And so they started starving the Dutch people. By the end of the war, the average Dutch citizen was only getting 300 calories of food per day. That's basically a box of jello. They were so desperate they would do things like dig up tulip bulbs from the front yard and cook them and make them into a soup. The only heat would be, uh, you know, these little uh, charcoal fire starters that we have. It's an oversized tin can with holes and you get a little fire going. That's what they had to cook their food on. Mm. They would pry up every other stair on the stair step. They would raid abandoned houses for doors and anything peel off. One out of every four trees in the Netherlands was cut down to be stuffed in the fireplace so that people wouldn't freeze to death. 
What did you discover with respect to the resiliency of the Dutch people as the Nazis were really attempting to severely oppress them? Well, there were a lot of heroes. They were not all heroes. A lot of Dutch people sided with the Germans. There were a lot of collaborators. But to your point of your question, the Dutch resistance was more not so much of the uh, action thriller movie blowing up bomb, blowing up bridges and supply depots and so on. It was more like um, under undercover things like behind the scenes, uh, misinformation, passing information. Probably the greatest act of sabotage against the Germans is very little known. The Germans took over the Dutch National Bank to steal all their money. And then the Dutch stole it back. And the Germans never found out. The, the Dutch manufactured counterfeit money. They made plates and they printed fake money. They gave the fake money to the Germans and they kept the real money for themselves and used it to fund resistance activities. Set this up for us against this background of this winter season, 1944 and 45, which was the final winter season during World War II. So against these real life events, tell me how you crafted your story. Just the background of it. Uh, life is a God thing. We sometimes mm -hmm. say this was a God thing. That was a God thing. Everything is a God thing. But my son was in junior high. He dashed off a story in study hall just for fun about World War II in the Netherlands. He put it in the Netherlands because my wife is Dutch. He brought it home and I thought it was pretty good. And so he and I decided to write a story together. And then he soon lost interest, but then I was hooked. But I wasn't intending to publish it. I was just gonna do it as a fun thing between, between he and I. Mm -hmm. But the setup for the story is this. 13-year-old Dirk's father goes to fight with the resistance. Months later, his mother dies. Then when his older sister gets ambushed by the Gestapo, Young Dirk gets a middle-of-the-night warning that he's got to leave home right away because the Gestapo is coming for him next. So he's 13 years old. He's got his pockets stuffed with food, his little sister asleep in his arms, and his heart is carrying a dark secret. He's got to stay ahead of the Nazis, protect his sister, and somehow find their father. So you mentioned that as your son had written that story, that this was a God thing. It was a project that the two of you at least set out to do together. I wanted to ask you here at this point just to, to talk about how the, the faith element has motivated you and perhaps has been integrated into this book. Christian fiction has changed a lot in my, in my lifetime. It used to be that in Christian fiction that everybody got saved Everything was wonderful. Everything was great. And so in this story, young Dirk asked some hard questions about how can we still believe in God when so many bad things are happening? He gets a good answer late in the, in the story from his, from his father. Um, his little sister is perky and kind of pesky in a hopefully humorous way. He's, she's often reminding him to pray. A phrase that repeats in the novel is keep your hopes up and your prayers strong. So the story is paramount. It doesn't read like a sermon, but there are some strong faith elements. And I'm so happy that a Christian publisher, Tyndale, picked it up so I was able to keep those in the story. Rob Curry here on The Intersection. His website address is robcurry, C-U-R-R-I-E, author.com. 
Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's Pat Nolan, founder and director of the Nolan Center for Justice Reform at the American Conservative Union Foundation. In our overall conversation, he shared about his story about spending time in prison, in leadership at Prison Fellowship, and in working in the area of criminal justice reform through his organization. With some insight regarding criminal justice reform, this is Pat Nolan now. Parents are important in a child's life. Uh, and uh, first of all, they should be placed closer if we're going to send them to prison. But for nonviolent prisoners, we even advocate home confinement where they can be there uh, with their children, helping their spouse, um, you know, care for the children, teaching them, guiding them. You know, uh, I was an absentee father. My kids didn't understand that. They don't understand the legal issues. But for two and a half years, my wife had to be everything. <laughs> and uh, it was really bad, really hard on her when they all three came down with chickenpox at the same time. And uh, if I'd been home, I could have helped spell her uh, as well as, you know, help uh, all, all year long. Uh, locking me up, you know, I was no threat to society. And frankly, there are a lot of prisoners uh, like that. Uh, so if they could be home with their family, but under strict supervision, frequent drug tests, I'm not a drug user, but every month I was tested in prison, always came up negative. But, you know, uh, that, that's a, a good policy to make sure nobody's uh, doing dope while they're uh, on, uh, under supervision. But uh, that's, that's much better for the children. Uh, also, you know, if uh, the parent uh, is able to be gainfully employed, he can help support the family. He also provides a good role model for the kids uh, because a lot of times children grow up without seeing a parent that gets up in the morning, cleans up, dresses nice, and goes to work. That's, that's not modeled for a lot of the young kids growing up. We think that's very important that they see what hard work and gainful employment does. There's a dignity in work. Uh, rather than uh, living off the government dole. So th those are things um, that, that we say should be taken into account. Right now, there's no allowance for that under the sentencing structure. Instead, one of the factors that should be considered is what impact it'll have on the family and especially on the children. And as you mentioned in the Washington Times, you cite the Washington State Family Offender Sentencing Alternative. You also mentioned that five other states have enacted legislation to encourage consideration of these types of alternatives at sentencing. It seems to me, Pat, that also this might provide some opportunities for churches and prison ministries and other faith-based community organizations to get involved. Oh, you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Dr. King said, to change someone, you must first love them, and they must know that you love them. Now, government programs don't love people, <laughs> but the church does. And in love, to come alongside and help guide uh, the great uh, Christian uh, singer, Whitley Phipps, says, they're like tender shoots 
and we need to pack them in soil of good moral people. And I love that analogy, you know, have them surrounded by good, loving people, but also that aren't pushovers, you know, that hold them accountable. When they are supposed to show up, they show up. If they take on a job at the church, they show up and do it, you know, as a volunteer. Uh, but that that's what holds them accountable. And, you know, uh, John DiUlio, the great sociologist, said the last two institutions to leave the inner city are liquor stores and churches. And, you know, what a contrast. Liquor stores are clusters of gambling, prostitution, drugs, fights. Churches are clusters of people living healthy lives, uh, being involved in the community, giving of themselves, uh, you know, following Matthew uh, 25, 40. Whatever you do to the least of these, you do unto me. With generosity and with love. What a contrast that is. And uh, it's the church that can make the difference in these people's lives in a way that the government never can. So I'm so glad you brought that up. Pat Nolan here on The Intersection. You can learn more through the website conservativejusticereform.org. Well, thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection Podcast. You can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center where you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. The podcast can be found in the Media Center. It's also available through iTunes. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, and the other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page, and there's a link to video content. Conversations from the Meeting House program can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms. Just look for the Faith Radio podcast. Well, thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.